Welcome to the review of Democracy, the journal of the CEU Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications concerning the past, present, and future of democracies across the globe. I am Ferenc Lotso. I am an editor at Revdem, and it is a special pleasure for me to host Melvin Rogers today. Welcome to the show, Melvin. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you to all of the listeners. Amazing to have you at the Review of Democracy. Melvin Rogers is a professor of political science and associate director of the Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Brown University. He has wide-ranging interests in contemporary democratic theory, in the history of American and African-American political thought, and in pragmatism. Melvin Rogers has just published an impressive new monograph titled The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought, which will serve as the main basis of our conversation today. This new book poses a vexing question, Melvin. What is it about democracy that justifies our faith and especially African-Americans' faith in it? And by exploring a number of key thinkers, your book throws a specific arc and provides an interpretation of African-American political thought in the 19th and 20th centuries. So as an introductory question of sorts, could you introduce the thinkers you study on these pages and tell me a bit about why you chose to engage with them? Sure. And again, thank you for having me. So. The book doesn't provide a series of intellectual portraits of the figures that I that I take up. And what it really tries to do is to focus on a constellation of figures who I argue had something important to say about democracy. And so the first portion of the book uh, spends a lot of time with the 19th century, a group of 19th century abolitionists. So we take up uh, David Walker in the 1820s, Mariah Stewart and Josiah Easton in the 1830s. We move on to Martin Delaney and Frederick Douglass uh, in the 1850s and 60s. And then we shift in, I would say, really the sort of second half of the book, we transition to you know, Ida B. Wells and Anna Julia Cooper and W.B. Du Bois, Billie Holiday, the jazz musician, blues musician, and we conclude with James Baldwin. And in between that, there's a variety of figures that uh, deal with. Um, they all have their own specific identity. They all are working with a configuration of the problem, that is to say, um, the domination of Black lives that has taken place at the hands of the United States. But this displays itself in very specific ways across the sort of vast terrain that the book covers related to these thinkers. Uh, thank you so much for that. That's really fascinating. It seems to me that you argue in the book that the African-American thinkers you study directed their reflections to the effective basis of self and society. They were trying to re-educate the sensibilities of their white counterparts in particular and offer alternative patterns of proper regard. 
you also seem to be arguing at, at one point that the ethical and political language of Black Americans may have followed that of their white counterparts in many ways, but the normative vision offered by Black people sought to reshape the ethos of American society. So could I ask you to comment on that difference in normative visions? What might be viewed as distinctive and in fact as truly original in African-American political thought when it comes to race, democracy, and freedom? Yeah, I mean, and that's a challenging question because truly original, I mean, how many of us are truly original, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with relying on or depending on the resources that come before, even as we engage in a reconfiguration and revision. The thing I would say about these thinkers is that the primary question that animates the book is the puzzle with which you began your introduction, which is, how do we make sense of this group of African-American thinkers from David Walker to James Baldwin who find themselves under assault by the society to which they otherwise belong? How do we make sense of their constant appeals to the nation? Or to put it differently, how must they understand democracy such that they can render, even if only to themselves, intelligible their appeals, right? And this, this sort of forces us to sort of think about, well, how really are they thinking about democracy? And at bottom, what emerges is that their normative vision is a vision of a racially just society and is a vision that runs alongside a very dominant thread in American life and culture that is premised on the domination and the exclusion of Black people. So there is the first and most important stark contrast in the normative visions of African-Americans vis-a-vis the wider American tradition uh, in which they stand. And then once we sort of focus on this vision, we sort of ask ourselves, um, sort of how I ask myself, how does it sort of shape some of the key concepts that's otherwise central to American political thought and culture. How does it, for example, transform our understanding of freedom? And so in the very first part of the book, for example, we spend, or I spend, I keep saying we, um, because I want to include all of us. And in some ways, the book is a product of my reliance with a wider family of consideration and a, a much wider group of, of figures, not simply the ones I discuss in the book, uh, but contemporary scholars. But I'll stick with I. Um, one of the things I argue in the sort of first part of the book is that you see a preoccupation in 19th century abolitionist David Walker, a preoccupation with domination, basically Black people living at the arbitrary mercy of their white counterparts. This cuts through Mariah Stewart uh, in her lectures of the 1830s as she's given those in Massachusetts and through other figures of the period. And you find them relying on a political philosophical tradition that we otherwise call republicanism. Now, republicanism has uh, Greek and Roman sources, and republicanism is defined by two elements. One element emphasizes the role of civic participation. It emphasizes the role of the virtues of the citizen that's needed to sustain a political society. But the other side of republicanism is how do we ensure that citizens do not fall prey to their fellows or to institutions and fall prey to 
the power that those institutions might use against them and use it sort of arbitrarily. And so this is their preoccupation with republicanism, preoccupation with freedom against domination. And they thought that the best way to guard against this was to ensure that institutional structures were set up in such a way that they could protect citizens against this kind of abuse. Well, African-Americans are relying on this language of freedom and their concern to guard against domination. But the nature of domination that they confront is not merely uh, sort of housed within institutions. This is not merely a king or aristocrats denying you standing that you had previously enjoyed. Let's take the American colonists vis-a-vis -vis the British crown. This is a society that has uh, circulating throughout the culture, both among elites and non-elites, the idea that Black people are only fit to be the subjects of others. And African-American thinkers thought that if freedom was going to be realized for them, if it was going to be a resilient across time, then it was those ideas that circulated in the culture that had to be transformed. So the institutional reconstruction matters. Republicanism is partly right there. But ultimately, the reconstruction of those institutions are not stable and they won't last unless you transform the cultural foundation upon which they exist. And so African-Americans say, the group of figures that I take up, in order for freedom to be resilient, right, we must be regarded as equals and on equal standing of our fellows, and it must inhabit and animate the culture to which both Black people and white people belong. Uh, that's a very rich and illuminating response. Thank you so much for that. Another thing I have noticed is that you recurrently use guiding concepts on these pages, such as the people, rhetoric, aspiration, imagination, affect, also aesthetics, character, and very importantly, faith. So could I ask you to discuss your analytical vocabulary a bit? Why do you employ these concepts and how exactly do you use them? So I think the, the use of this vocabulary first requires me to say something about my methodological orientation in the book as I interpret figures from the 1830s to the 1960s. I am trained as a political scientist, and my area of expertise is political theory. I've been partly trained through that sort of school of thinking that's associated with Cambridge that you would find in figures like Quentin Skinner uh, or John Donne, in which the kind of historical specificity of figures matters a great deal to figure out what it is they took themselves to be doing. And so I I uh, try throughout the book to make sure that we're reading these figures on their terms as they grapple with the specificity of, of domination and exclusion that Black people are facing. But they are all not the same, and they are not all speaking the same language, and they're not all using uh, the same words to animate the critiques they're making of the United States and the positive proposals that they're offering up. So I needed a way to sort of stabilize the interpretation across the pages, the story that I'm telling. And I needed a way to sort of stabilize uh, what I take to be the shared vision of these thinkers, that normative vision of a racially just society. 
And so it became necessary to deploy a set of terms, sometimes explicit in some figures, or sometimes implicit in other figures, right? So I needed a set of terms that could help sort of stabilize both the story and the vision. And when you come to the terms, what are the terms that help animate the book, that enliven it and bind and tie these figures to each other or tie them together? So the first central concept is a concept that is just central to democratic discourse, especially in the United States, which is the language of the people. Um, both the culture of American life and its politics, both in practice and on the page, um, is littered with invocations of the people. African-American thinkers, the ones I take up, they're no different in this regard, but what you quickly come to discover is that the idea of the people functions in two senses. The first is that the people is simply a descriptive term. To invoke the people is merely to refer to those who have rights and privileges per the United States Constitution. But then you also come to discover that the people function for these figures in a kind of aspirational sense, that when they invoke the people, they're not always talking about the people who descriptively enjoy standing based on the Constitution, but they are describing uh, a configuration of the people that is not yet in existence, that may yet come into existence, a figure of the people that's in the future, that they're trying to call into existence in the present. And this conception of the people I call aspirational, but this immediately raises a question about, well, how do you get the descriptive people on the ground to embrace this new configuration of themselves? And there, a new set of concepts and ideas come to animate the, the book. One such concept is the idea of rhetoric. And then the other concepts include sort of affect and aesthetics. So on rhetoric, what you come to realize is that Black people were always engaged in a project of persuasion. They were always engaged in trying to, and quite literally, move their white counterparts from one position to another, right? the hallmark of persuasion. But they were also trying to do this in just this way. And this, I think, is quite central, is because they needed their white counterparts, once persuaded, to see this new vision as emanating from themselves. Yes, Black people could help point the way, could provide some guiding markers, but ultimately you need to say, I am persuaded and I am willing now to live my life in the light of, of these new ideas. And this matters if you want your fellows to be able to honor your freedom and equal standing and to honor it without the imposition of law, although sometimes that imposition may matter and be required. But, but if you want them to be able to sort of live their life in the light of it, it has to emanate from, from their will. They have to believe it does. But this idea of persuasion and moving your audience from one side to another then involves a sort of vision of the kinds of creatures that we are. And African-Americans argued that we are both affective creatures and we are aesthetic projects affective to the extent that how you move your fellows is bound up with their emotional states. It's bound up with how they feel about you and the community to which they belong, right? And so throughout the project, right, you in the book, you find me deploying 
language, for example, the term horror, which is quite central to Ida B. Wells's anti-lynching campaign at the end of the uh, 19th century as she moves into the 20th century. Um, you come to discover that the language of shame becomes quite central, whether we're working with David Walker in the 1830s, well, what is he trying to do when he asked his American counterparts, do you not understand what your Declaration of Independence really means? Well, he's trying to shame them. He's trying to say, you seem to be confused and you're falling below a standard that you otherwise claim to be committed to. You see it again in, in Du Bois and you most certainly see it in the figure that I conclude with James, uh, James Baldwin. But whether we're talking about affect or whether we're talking about aesthetics, both concepts are bound to the idea that we are, that we are always creatures in progress. We're always creatures in development. And it is that sense of us being creatures in development that gave African-Americans the sense, the thinkers that I take up, the sense that they may yet be able to reshape their fellows and in turn reshape the polity. But of course, and I'll conclude on this, I think on this final point with respect to this question, they know, they're under no illusions. And this is quite important. They understand that in a democratic society where you rely on persuasion, your fellows may say no. They may say I'm unpersuaded, right? And the ability of your fellows to say that they are unpersuaded means that you do not exercise complete power or authority over them. You do not exercise sovereignty over them. At the moment in which you appeal to them, and in some instances they appeal to you, you come to realize actually that this democratic life is a shared life of non-sovereignty because we don't exercise complete control. And in this moment, what African-Americans come to realize is that so what sort of keeps you here, keeps you making the appeal. And there I argue that, that ultimately there's an idea of faith that orients these figures. Why at a mundane level, faith for these figures is about running ahead of the evidence that you need to justify the stance or the appeal that you're taking in the first place, right? And so what African-Americans help us to see as they grapple with their own specific plight is a kind of shared vulnerability that is often consistently denied by the very fact that white Americans have historically been able to exercise power over black folks. Right, that one way of reading that exercise of power is their attempt to deny a kind of vulnerability that is inescapable in sharing a life with their fellows. Uh, that's a very intricate and nuanced and, shall I say, persuasive answer. Thank you so much for that. Now, our listeners may know that you have also uh, edited a collected history of African-American political thought just a few years ago before you, you would have completed uh, this new uh, monograph. So I wanted to ask you a bit about the connection between these two uh, projects. You know, how, do the, how does the, the conception or how do the specific arguments of these two volumes relate to each other? And would you say that this more communal endeavor that you have been such an important uh, part of has also inspired you when writing your own monograph. Right. So a few years ago, uh, I published with a dear friend and colleague of mine, Jack Turner, a big edited volume from the University of Chicago Press, uh, African-American uh, Political Thought and Collected History. And basically it includes 30 chapters on key figures in the history of African-American political thought written by 
contemporary scholars. And uh, Jack, affectionately called Chip, uh, Chip and I, we thought, look, it's high time that we now try to sort of take stock of where we are in understanding this uh, grand tradition of African-American political thought. And it's high time that we try to, in this contemporary moment, articulate something of a provisional canon of this epic tradition. And so that was sort of the motivation and basis for the volume. And it sort of emerges at a time when a scholarship in Africana political philosophy or African-American political philosophy specifically, interest in that is really growing. So we're hoping that that book can serve as a guide. I think that book, African-American Political Thought of Collected History, is related to the dark and light of faith in two ways. The first is we share the argument and the claim that African-American political thought is not merely uh, repeating what one finds in one's prominent philosophical uh, counterpart, who happens also to be white um, or European. We argue that you see among these figures a conceptual reconfiguration. I gave you the example of freedom. Um, but we could do this for democracy, we could do it for equality, we could do it for community. So you see conceptual reconfiguration that can only be brought into view if you take seriously the experiences of African-Americans. And so we're centering the experiences of African-Americans as a way to give us some traction on what they're up to and how they add to the tradition. My book does the same thing. But I think the second way in which the two are connected has to do with the sort of concluding remarks that Chip and I compose for the introduction of African-American political thought. And those concluding reflections tell us that the tradition of African-American political thought takes seriously the Socratic question. Well, what is the Socratic question? So if we think about Plato's kind of stylized version of Socrates' trial the, right, in the Apology, we have Socrates before Athens being prepared to be judged, right? He's brought up on charges of impiety and corrupting the youth. And at the very outset of the apology, Socrates says, look, I'm going to give speeches. My accusers are going to give speeches. I will fumble about. I will ramble. Um, their speeches will be adorned. They will be beautiful. And then Socrates concludes basically with saying, I am telling you the truth and they are not. And at the heart of this moment in the apology is a question, must truth be beautiful before you accept it? Must it flatter you? Must it make you feel good about yourself before you accept it? African-American thinkers are asking the same question to their American counterparts. Are you willing to face the ugliness of your racial past and respond to it? What is sort of the true hallmark of a healthy democratic community, right? And many of them argue that the tradition of American political thought and culture is mired in a desire both to believe that it is innocent and that it is on this inevitable road toward progress that will redeem it of its sins, right? The sins of white supremacy and slavery. 
and this desire to feel that you're innocent and this sense of inevitable progress is to the United States what adorned and beautiful speeches were to the Athenian society. And so part of what my book is, is doing, and it continues the sort of goal of African-American political thought of collected history, but part of what it is doing is attempting and narrating from the 1830s to the 1960s, this normative visions to puncture the innocence of American life. And it's also interested in suggesting that it, that it may not be that you redeem yourself from your sins. Maybe that's not the right goal. Maybe the more appropriate goal which is the argument that James Baldwin makes in the 1960s, is how you live in the light of those sins. How are you constantly trying to respond given the specificity of the United States racial past and the way it bleeds into our present? So I think in those two ways, dark and light, the dark and light of faith sort of continues what you see started in African-American political thought of collected history. Uh, those are brilliant insights. Thank you so much for those. I also wanted to talk a bit about the even broader uh, context of your book. You mentioned in the introduction uh, that your reading of key thinkers overlaps with political theories turned towards ethos. And you also state that your most proximate fellow travelers emphasize the habits of racial disregard and the culture of racial ideology. So could you discuss some of those authors that you call fellow travelers and how you have interacted with their ideas? And in connection with that, what may, might make your own approach somewhat different and perhaps rather distinctive? Right, yeah. And political theory, I think, you know, in the work of William Connolly, a famous political theorist, in the work of uh, Stephen White, a famous political theorist, there is a preoccupation with the ethos of society or sort of the characteristic spirit that orients society. And one of the things that emerges for me in that literature is the absence of African-American thinkers and in some sense sort of failing to sort of deal with the way in which race animates American life. And so I found myself turning to another group of figures, some of whom are political scientists, but not all of them are, are political scientists. So I found myself turning to uh, figures like Eddie Glaud uh, in African-American and religious studies. I found myself uh, turning to Amani Perry in African-American studies. And I also found myself turning to Daniel Allen and Chris LeBron in political science. And if I were to just sort of focus on, let's say, Eddie Glaude and Dania Allen and Chris LeBron, what those three figures share is a preoccupation with the habits of white supremacy that shape American life and that shape American discourse. Where I think I sort of sort of build on that, I'm more interested in the sort of historical shape of this concern with habit that principally figures in their writings in terms of contemporary politics uh, and the like. And so what I want to, to claim that I hope is, is a contribution and, um, and most certainly I know is distinctive, but I hope is received as a contribution, I want to say that from uh, the 1830s down to the 1960s, this particular strand of African-American political thought that I am tracing centers 
the habits of American life. It centers the culture of American life. Uh, and it is asking about how those two things, habits and culture, reveal the characteristic spirit of American life. And the ways in which that characteristic spirit seems to be is defined by a white supremacy. And so how ought we to respond? Well, they think there are other elements of that characteristic spirit that one can uh, rely on and deploy. And so by the time you reach the end of the book, white supremacy most certainly turns out to be a central to American life and culture and uh, politics, but it is not exhaustive of the American ethos. It is not exhaustive of the resources that we can draw on to realize a racially just society. So I think in that way, I, I'm sort of continuous with them in centering ethos. And I think I'm, I, I'm sort of distinctive, the book is distinctive in how it tries to tell a more historical story. And in some ways it tries to tell a more unified story about African-American political thought and its reliance on ethos to deal with this, this issue of white supremacy. Yes, and it, and it does tell that historical story in a very powerful manner. In closing, I also wanted to refer to something you write in your conclusion, and I'm quoting here, our belief in national absolution is destructive. We do not find success in defeating the past, but in preventing it from becoming tyrannical. And of course, I think that's a very, very powerful sentence. And again, I only quoted it in parts. And you thus critique an idea of progress that entails redemption. And you propose instead what you call critical responsiveness, right? So why did you decide to close the book on this important note? And what issues do you see with the progress as redemption narrative? And how do you suggest we think about critical responsiveness? So one way to think about sort of why I conclude on this note that you're picking up, and the conclusion revolves around uh, two figures, Gunnar Miral and his 1944 uh, text, An American Dilemma, as he's dealing with the problems of racial inequality and the persistence of it, and the figure of, of James Baldwin. But I come to those two at the end because over the arc of the book, I'm telling a story about the aspirational politics that animate African-American political thought. And aspirational politics is always about the future and it's always about sort of how we get from here to there, where there is a racially just society. And this use of aspirational politics in my country, it can easily fit with the various myths that animate American life, that it is exceptional, that it is special, that it is perpetually on the road upward. And it doesn't matter how many times historians attack this uh, and try to undercut it. It doesn't matter how many times philosophers and critical theorists go after this. This still seems to be a sort of animating idea of American life. And the ending of the book is an attempt to show why this is problematic when applied to the persistence of racial inequality. And the reason why it is problematic is because the very aim for progress and the very belief that we are necessarily moving forward actually undermines the thing that progress is meant to provide us. 
which is a better society than the one we, we've lived in or the one that we're living in. And so part of what I do in that final chapter is to say, well, who might be a representative example of a kind of aspirational politics gone wrong? And I give you an analysis of Ganemiro's An American Dilemma, and I try to sort of explain how it is that that book is so mired in telling us a wonderfully beautiful origin story about how great America is, and how even when it attempts to confront Black pain and death in the history of American life, Black pain and death sit in a very odd way. They appear not the sort of history of of racial disregard appears not to emanate from America's will, but seems to emanate from aberrations or missteps that we've made. And this, of course, mischaracterizes the centrality of white supremacy to American, to American life. And if you follow Middall, Middall's account, when you read it, it has the effect, and it did in its own time, given its prominence, of making Americans feel quite comfortable that those horrors did not emanate from the will of their country, that those horrors, because they are past, are not in the present and they flow away from the identity of American life. And so then you raise the question, well, then what explains from the 1940s into the 1960s, the persistent challenges that African-Americans are, are, are facing? Well, it must be as many argued in the 1960s against the civil rights, and it would become quite dominant in the 70s, well, it must be because of the choices that Black people are making. It has to be. It can't be anything about us and the nation. And so James Baldwin in the 1960s, I think, tries to puncture that account. Uh, and he tries to puncture it by saying that we're not innocent at all. We're quite complicit. Uh, and we remain complicit precisely to the extent that we insist on our innocence. And Baldwin tries to puncture it and tell his audience that, look, I know you didn't do it, and I didn't do it either, but we share this country and we are therefore responsible. This is our inheritance. What are we going to do about it? And so Baldwin tries to offer up uh, what I argue in the, in the latter part of the book, a shared account of, of, of responsibility that is quite consistent with all of the thinkers that we will have encountered up until that moment. And I think finally, what makes us live to accepting our complicity and what makes us alive to the notion of shared responsibility um, is that the hallmark of being a democratic citizen is being critically responsive to the community to which you belong and the ways in which choices of the past bleed into the present is to be alive to that, right? And I think one of the critical things that comes out in my discussion of Baldwin in, in Baldwin's writings is not that the United States cannot change. It is not even that the United States cannot progress. It is that we should not think of change and progress as redeeming the sins of the past. They may atone for them, right? But they don't redeem them. And redemption is about releasing the self from sin. Atonement is about acknowledging those mistakes and allowing that acknowledgement to shape what you're doing in the present. And so your actions are only intelligible in light of that past that you're constantly thinking about.
not that you're running away from, not that you're claiming innocence from, but that you're constantly that you're constantly thinking about. And Baldwin says that that's the that's what it means to be critically responsive. And so now the true test of a democratic society for Baldwin is not given our history. That is to say, the history in the United States. The true test is not whether you the nation redeems itself of its sins, um, but the skill and agility with which it responds to that past that is always threatening to bleed into the present. That's how you measure the health of America's democracy as it relates to uh, racial inequality. Thank you so much for that nuanced answer and for the entire conversation, Melvin. Well, thank you for having me. The pleasure has been all mine. I have been discussing with Melvin Rogers today, whose fascinating new book, The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought, is available now. I hope you'll have the chance to read it. It's very much worthwhile to do so. And I also hope you have enjoyed our conversation about it. Until the next conversation here at the Review of Democracy.